Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today I'm delighted to welcome Colin Brett, one of Britain's leading coaches and coach trainers. Colin has worked as a transactional analyst and a counsellor, as well as an executive coach, helping individuals, leaders and teams flourish, both at work and in their personal lives. He has four master's degrees, including one in organisational analysis, one in coaching psychology and one in positive psychology. He's the founder of a coaching training company, Coaching Development, and has also recently been ordained as an interfaith minister. In this podcast, he talks about the life-changing power of a useful conversation and our hunger for meaning. Hello, Colin, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Christina, thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. So when I tell people that I've trained as a coach, they generally look baffled. Could you please start by telling us what a coach is? (laughs) I wondered if you'd ask that. Yeah, the coach is someone who helps you think about what you're thinking. A coach is someone who helps you then do a number of things. So there's the, the traditional, straightforward, what do you want in your life? What do you want exactly? How could you get there? And let's go. But a coach is also someone who says, what do you want in your life? How do you want it to be different? How could you do that? How might you get in your own way? And if you do get in your own way, what story, what typical story will you tell yourself? And then let's go. Mm. And a coach might be someone who goes above and beyond the, the usual and the traditional and helps you reflect, so think more deeply, on your mission and purpose. So why am I? And if there were such a thing as um, an intelligence in life or in the universe. We've been, we sometimes say, oh God, give me this, give me that. But do we always think about, and what would life like from me? Mm. And what's my purpose in being here? How can I add value? So a coach can do all kinds of things, but essentially I think a coach is someone who's like your chief learning officer someone who helps you get a grasp on how you be in the world. Wow. Well, I, if anyone now feels they don't need a coach as a matter of some urgency, I'd be quite surprised. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you later about the what does life want of me, because that relates to something else you've done very recently. But let's go back to the beginning. Yes. You've clearly always had a fascination with the workings of the human psyche when did when and how did that start (laughs) what a lovely question i remember when i was heading for finals um that i began to get irritated because people kept coming and talking to me and i don't know why or at least i i didn't know why And then that continued and I became interested in counselling and found that counselling generally, at least that that model, was particularly around being present and listening and witnessing. And that that progressed 
I've always been a listener. There's something about what happens when someone feels heard. Mm. Some shift begins to happen, some, some gradual growing awareness. My history after, is that I trained as a, an analyst and a therapist and became more interested in not why are we the way we are and the influences of the past and what happened to us and this sense that we made of it, rightly or wrongly, but actually where are we going? And I have found myself much, much more curious about so with us the way we are, what's possible for us? Mm. So I see humans then as being, um, I, th I think, Christine, we always develop, we always grow, we always move forward, and that's called life. But we don't really engage brain and think about, so what would I like going forwards? And that's where I find myself um, working particularly with um, with a quiet passion. Mm. And what was your model of work growing up? My model of work growing up? What a fantastic question. <clears throat> it's what you do. You go to school, you go to university, you get a job and that's it. And you stay there. I started to work in a bookshop when I was about 15, I think, uh, weekends and holidays. My father was a pharmacist, and he was a very dedicated person to the, I think, the well-being of the community in general. So for me, work is not only the nine-to-five piece, it's also what else is there around it, and perhaps even, it might even include making a contribution, which is what my mother did as well through her work in the Townswomen's Guild and the, the, the choir. Mm. So lots of public service. Was there any room in that model for creativity? Probably not. So school was the 60s and uni was the early 70s. And it was all fairly clearly laid down. And I think I was heading for one of three professions. One was to teach, um, which I do, but not what I studied. One was um, to translate my degrees in German and Russian, and the other was to work in GCHQ or be a spy. So there, there wasn't much room for creativity. How tempted were you by the spy route? My niece is convinced that I'm a spy even now because... <laughs> you would make a very good spy, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm almost more frequently found in other countries than, than the UK. I, th I, it was always very tempting to be a to think about being a spy, but I flirted with it. But it was a bit beyond me. And what made you choose languages? It was the thing I could do at school, and um, I remember a French teacher saying, "Brett can roll his R's properly." And then um, we had to choose between physics and German, and I chose German. And it was a small group. It was easy to shine. And I found myself. 
You've done four master's degrees, which is more than anybody I know, but it sounds as if you were not or didn't think you were particularly academically wonderful at school, apart from in languages. What do you think stopped you from developing your academic gifts at school? Bullying. Right. Um, And I think the general keep them down and get them learning their verbs and their formulas, um, but don't give them any free reign. I think academic, the school I went to was academically pretty good. And I came into my own when I left. So you studied languages, you flirted with spying and uh, settled on counselling therapeutic thing. Did you but that's, it's not easy to earn a living from that straight away. How did you earn a living when you left university? I went to Germany and taught English as a foreign language for a year. Came back, did a master's in German. Went back to Switzerland for a year and then back to Germany for a year teaching English as a foreign language. Which is where... So I, I'm, I used to say I was made in Great Britain but, but formed in West Germany. Mm. So living there was very good for my rational self. And yeah, finding out about the world of work mm. in a different country. What did you learn in Germany that that sort of was new to you? Structure, process. Mm. In England, the buses run. In German, Germany, they run on time. Yeah. So it's the it was the regularity that I really enjoyed, I think. I'm just thinking now, for some reason, of Shakespeare's sonnet and the discipline of the, the kind of beauty that comes out of that discipline and constraint. Do you feel that 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 kind of disciplined structure, those rigid structures in a way, allow for other kinds of freedom in the work? Oh, I certainly do. I certainly do. For two, in two ways. If you have um, rigid discipline, then you have boundaries. Yes. And where you have boundaries, you have focus and you have concentration. Yes. And it's easier to go into depth rather than yes. breadth. Yes. So certainly that. But I also think that if you're like me, then you see boundaries and think, oh, right, now how am I going to get around that? And so... Um, you might remember I have childhood memories around um, going not through fences, but under fences. Because I, I was told not to go through, f- through, but so, okay, I'll go under. So, yes, I think that um, I have generally a healthy questioning, which sometimes shows itself in an unhealthy rebellion. But it might be unhealthy, but you, it's subtle. And has that ever caused problems for you in the workplace? I think as I have become older, I have allowed myself to become much more creative. I tend to get on with um, structures, processes and authority figures quite well. And yet... I'm one of those people who has so many good ideas and we could this, we could that, that I do get into trouble because I get much more fascinated by what could be rather than what needs to be finished off. (laughs) 
I should, by the way, for the sake of listeners, explain that you taught the coaching course I did last year, which I thought was fantastic. And um, uh, I really loved it. And it was fascinating to watch a master in their field um, operating and teaching and coaching. And uh, it's one of the reasons it's such a pleasure to talk to you today, because I think a lot of people, when they hear about coaching, they think either football coach or they think life coaching or they think a bit of nutritional advice or, you know, something like that. And I think what's what's sort of what I find fascinating is, as you say, the depth of it or the potential depth of it. And Mm. um, I think in your particular case, that's partly a result of bringing together your background in analysis and counselling and then all the other areas that you've been involved with and the degrees you've done. But um, can you tell me a bit bit more about your time with transactional analysis and and how effective you've, I mean, when you worked as a counsellor, was that your chief kind of tool or did you go from counselling to analysis or tell tell me about that and how that worked and and, uh, what made you focus on transactional analysis? I came across the world of counselling when I was living in Germany. I met two speech therapists who gave people the gift of speech. It was quite remarkable how they did it. Their thinking model was actually Alfred Adler's individual psychology. And that was my first love and is still my first love. I came back to the UK and as a qualified counsellor and trained in counsellor supervision oh, right. in a place run by quite remarkable people. And I stayed on there and learnt TA, transaction analysis, mm. there. I, When I was about 39, I burnt out and left the world of counselling and analysis and then came back again. But looking at TA as being a model for growth, communication, and human interaction in organizations. Mm. So you take the same theories, but you change the context. And I found myself quite at home thinking of um, not personality types for people, but personality types for organizations, so to speak. And then, of course, when you have... um, clearly recognizable traits in an organization, then you can think, well, if it was a person, what's the intervention that's needed? And you can turn that into a way of running training courses, for example. So I've always been really fascinated by the concept that um, organizations have a personality. Mm. And, and if they do, well, let's, let's work with it fascinating and it absolutely makes sense but I can't imagine that would be an instantly easy concept to sell how did you go about (laughs) how did you go about marketing and selling that I listen and I think yeah I listen and I listen for themes and say something like it sounds to me as if this is a group of people who do um, who do a lot of emotion stuff before they do any thinking stuff. So bracket hysterical organizations. Or whatever, <laughs> just to be honest. 
or this sounds like an organization that's that really values structure and process and not too much personal stuff and it's it's all metaphor none of it's real but it's all metaphor so when you got to have the conversation where you said it sounds like this what were you in there to do what were you what did they think you were coming in to do <laughs> often i just meet people and listen occasionally right. people say you need to meet my boss and then they say quickly no my boss needs to meet you right and yeah i remember one one person who i he was very senior in an organization and he was told to meet me by his pa so i i put on my best suit my best shoes and go along to this very prestigious place and he comes into the room and says first of all the thing that i want you to know is i don't know why you're here and the second thing i want you to know is i don't like talking about myself to strangers so i thought this is going to be fun i said very little and then after an hour he looked at me and said how did you do that and i said what and he said you snuck up on me <laughs> so i think what i do is is really be present and be focused yes and pay attention to what's also said but not expressed so it's hearing between the lines or beyond the words and and verbalizing it and in coaching as as you've sort of touched on that is about starting where you are and moving forward but in all those years of counseling i mean although that is the hope and and the the dream um the past plays obviously a very heavy part in that yes and pain plays a very heavy part in that yes how how did you protect yourself from the constant barrage of pain i didn't which is why i burnt out <laughs> right it all got it all got too much um life was not easy and then a couple of things happened and i found myself um not protected not resourced and with no energy to look after me so the world fell apart mm. um there's um a way of looking at people is to say are you more able to be aware of yourself or are you more able to be aware of other people so that's called first position second position mm. and i'm much more able to be aware of others it's almost as if my awareness was not with me it's with them have you i mean that i imagine is pretty unusual in life have you always been like that yes yes and as as someone who listens all the time except when you're teaching and maybe that makes for a nice counterbalance to the listening did you ever or do you ever just want to say yeah great but what about me yes which i found entirely difficult mm. um part of my own makeup is the wish to please others and mm. to get it all right and both of those are focused on other not self but um i found i found more and more ways of looking after me which i have had to reframe as being not selfish but self-focused 
And I have learnt that if I'm really to be of use and service, then I have to start at home. And I find ways like travel is the main one. Um, sunshine is another. Mm. Nature is another. So I recharge my batteries away from people as a rule. Right. Or by doing master's degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Which of your master's degrees has had the biggest impact on your life? First is the history of the German language, which up to 1200, which I found really riveting and interesting. And I still love etymology. Where do words come from? Mm. Um, second was training. And that's been a big influence because I am a trainer by nature. And that gave me the validation, the badge, that, so that I could believe in me. The third is in organizational analysis, which is looking at organizations as if they were people and basically using psychology for organizational development. And the fourth is um, positive psychology. It is um, close to my heart. It's dear to my heart because it, folk, it asks, what is, what is flourishing? How do we thrive? What raises our spirits? How do we do more of what we do well? I think positive psychology has got an awful lot going for it, particularly at this stage of mankind's development. Interesting. I mean, the counter argument to positive psychology, which you might imagine is um, kind of, you know, the resident pessimist you might expect me to say, um, is that... Uh, for example, Martin Seligman, some of Martin Seligman's um, resilience, the resilience training he developed for American servicemen has found in research to be essentially completely useless. Mm. And, um, you know, everybody's doing gratitude journals and so on, which may or may not help. But there's a kind of banal subculture to it of kind of Instagram posts and sort of cheery slogans and so on. I mean, I, I imagine that's not really your bag, but are you, are you, what do you feel about those kind of offshoots? Well, Pollyanna rules okay. <laughs> <clears throat> and if we, if we just talk about blue sky, then tra-la, everything's going to be fine. It ain't. Mm. So positive psychology is, um, I find it, it is remarkably scientific. I've never met so many st stats and rats in my life. Um, I think everything can be cheapened and I think everything can be made simple. Yes. And I think if you simply take one or two bits out of a whole, then you might have some success. But if you go with the philosophy and the deeper thinking around what it is we've developed and how come we've developed it in this way, then I think uh, we get a, a different view of things. In its absolute, um, so absolutely fundamentally, psychology as usual, as it's called, can move somebody from being in, at a minus two to zero, whereas positive psychology can begin at zero and move to a plus two. Mm. And so I think that both has a place. What how what effect would you say positive psychology has had on your own life ah um particularly things like going to bed and thinking so what was good about today 
not necessarily gratitude, but close to gratitude. And looking forward to tomorrow and thinking, so what can I look forward to tomorrow? So the three good things. Mm. Those I found really, really helpful. And another is a type of thinking. Do I have optimistic thinking? Or do I have pessimistic thinking? So if something good happens, do I tell myself it was pure chance? Or do I tell myself, yeah, that's typical of me. And if things go wrong, do I say, yeah, well, that's life and it's always like that in it. Or do I say, okay, well, that was a one-off and that's not always. So I find positive psychology um, has got a lot of very applicable, straightforward, uncomplicated models. You might hear that I quite like it. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm really interested in that because I, I've heard it a lot to discredit it recently. Although, yes, uh, yeah. So that that is very interesting. Do you do you feel that it kind of has changed your thinking in a fundamental way? Yes, yes, yes. So when you learn analysis, you learn what's wrong with people. Mm. And when you learn counselling, you want to help people feel better. So again, it's the what's wrong with us. And Psych says, okay, so what's right in our lives? And that's in a way, uh, not traditional thinking. Yeah. And how does that apply? I mean, obviously, very, very grim times at the moment with, well, obviously, as a Russian speaker, I imagine you have very strong views about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and of course, recession, depressing politics, etc, etc. Does positive psychology have anything, does it play a role for you in the context of kind of world misery? It does, it does, absolutely it does. So you can, there's some beautiful work on positive leadership, for example. And along with that, there's a whole uh, piece of thinking around what is positive communication, for example. And while it is, um, of course, under some review, there is an idea that um, how many, what's the ratio of positives to negatives that actually help people feel better? For example, is it three to one? Is it five to one? Is it seven to one? So I think uh, that positive leadership um, beginning with self, absolutely at this moment in time. Who are the people in your network who you go to to have a chat because you leave them feeling good? Mm. The the energizers, the mm. positive energizers, mm. and then of course, who are the people in your network who you swallow twice before you ring because it's going to be difficult. I, yes. think, I think we can, to a great degree, begin to craft our lives and think, who's, who and what is good for me? And Psych gives us some, in, uh, some insights into what that might be. You see, it's so interesting because in this country, for some years, wherever you stand on Brexit, and obviously I was strongly and am strongly opposed to it, but the the version of positive thinking we've had from government has essentially been 
not grounded in reality. Yes. And um and is has and you know we saw the abs the archetypal and sort of ultimate example of that recently was trussonomics, which was developed in some parallel universe many moons from here, and of course yes. imploded as soon as it collided with reality. There is, but you know, a lot of people, and Boris Johnson in particular, his brand of boosterism was extremely popular and won him his enormous majority in 2019. How do we, I mean, yours clearly is grounded in in reality, but um, how do we sort of protect ourselves and each other from that version that is grounded in fantasy and causes so much harm? Well, this is it. It's fantasy. It is not reality. It's wishful thinking. Pospsych is not wishful thinking. Mm. It's scientifically founded. Mm. So um, wishful thinking and denial of what is and the absolutely um, unhinged belief that if we only think positive, then all the nasties will go away and life will be okay. It won't. So if you um, asked me... um, If we only believed in the positives, would life be better? No. But if we begin to change our thinking slightly and include more positive stuff, yes. You can't deny reality. Mm. Have you worked with politicians at all, Colin? No, bring them on. Yeah, I bring them on, exactly. Um, Can you please go to Parliament now and... (laughs) I was actually talking to a to a colleague who's also a transactional analyst and a master coach mm. about um, team coaching, f- team coaching for the cabinet. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it would be a t- very tough call because they're obviously. Um, well, I think the the key reason actually is that there are, although I do believe there are many politicians who genuinely want to improve things for people I think there are I can't imagine there are very many workplaces industries work cultures where there are so many egos who all want essentially I mean a a job beyond most people's wild imaginings and you'd have to be to actually want to be prime minister and kind of running essentially in charge of the lives of 67 million people the, the the hubris is to me, unimaginable. And if everyone sitting around the cabinet table wants to do that, there has to be something, to put it politely, very unusual about them. <laughs> How would you set about working in a context like that? Mm. So what you're talking about, I think, is a room full of egos. Mm. And that's a group, that's not a team. Yeah. And so I wonder what the unifying purpose is, but the unifying purpose rather than the each person's agenda or personal purpose. Yes. And I agree with you absolutely. People who get into that position of power and authority and influence are probably not um, of one heart and soul with everyone else in the room. Mm. So presumably you have, I mean, obviously lots of people do want to hit the top job in whatever profession they're in. But of course, an ego is not automatically a bad thing because you need leaders and, to, and powerful people to do good things in the world. But what have you learned about um, dealing with sort of groups of egos, or particularly teams at the top, jostling egos? How have you managed to sort of change the dynamics so that 
that becomes less of an obstruction to the organization's progress. Yes. One thing is to develop the purpose and ask people what actually their reason and purpose is. Mm. Why are we here? Um, and another is, well, that's it really. But Colin, how often, and I, I'm, I'm sure you do because, you know, I know you a bit, but how difficult is it to get people to be honest about their purpose? Because, you know, I met someone quite recently who said, oh, you know, my purpose is to help people. And having spent a bit of time with him, interviewing him, I thought it absolutely isn't. You know, yes. your purpose is to get as much attention as possible, which is yes. a perfectly understandable desire to have in life and we all have a mix of motives but if you are that unaware of your of, of your kind of key purpose then this isn't really looking good what what is the work that enables people to really confront and be honest about what they want mm -hmm. so I think then there are two elements the first is uh, the first thing that you would need to do is some personal work so help people to begin to think at depth. And that's the that's where one-to-one -one coaching is great. The question is, who am I? And why am I here? And then what is it that I can contribute? And if you do that with all the individuals and then bring them together and have them used to this kind of thinking and then begin to say, so what unites you as a group of people? And what actually is your reason for being here as a group of people? And perhaps even, if they're willing to do that, begin to talk about shared values. So what, what is it that unites us? A belief in better, for example? Thing is, when people come together, they don't want to lose face. Yeah. So then you'll get everyone saying, you know, my values are integrity, empathy, honesty, blah, 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 which, you know, if you're at Goldman Sachs might be the case, but it's not likely to be your key motivator. I've been asked to do some work with the team uh, for various reasons on their values. And what I'm, and the plan is to sit with the three guys at the top and say, what are the, your values? What are the organization's values? And how do they show up? Mm. And it's the how do they show up piece that interests me because yeah. that's reality. It's not what we say, it's what we do. Absolutely, yeah. And then to work with some of their team of 30 and say, so what do you think this organization's values are mm. and what's the evidence? Yeah. And then to bring those two together and see what shines through. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because, I mean, for many – purpose is a thing now isn't it that that was people didn't really talk about before and or not to the same extent and in one sense it's become pr it's part yes. of what you need along with your mission statement and your, your mission vision values and your purpose <laughs> and yes. um and i wondered how far if you sniff out that an organization's stated purpose bears little resemblance to the reality mm -hmm. i presume well what do you do in that situation so I always understood mission statements as being a statement of what isn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so the question is, what makes this important to you as a group of people? And 
if you are serious, but really serious about moving towards that, what are you willing to do? And what are you willing to compromise on? Mm. If you ever feel that you are being kind of um, co-opted to help with what is essentially PR, I mean, some organisations do these exercises because the board has decided it's a good idea or somebody's decided it's a good idea, but their heart isn't really in it. Do you walk away? Um, When I get the sense that um, I'm there to make things look pretty, and to do the right thing and pay lip service, I can't do it. I can't mm. do it. Mm. Um, of course, the seduction is the false fame that you get, and the and the the praise or the recognition. But actually, it's hollow. And I can't deal with hollow. I, mm. I, I yeah, hit I... the sh- I hit the shame button. <laughs> I want to ask you about coaching individuals now, because the the kind of um, one of the core stated beliefs in the sort of um, ICF accredited approach is I, I won't be able to remember the wording, but it's about you know that everybody has the power to you'll you'll know the phrase the power to change it, and so on. Um, and but I want to kind of also apply you know bring in the reality check that for example I was reading a a few pieces this week about um, people over 50 who are falling out of the workplace some to do with illness and uh, there are other factors as well I met a a group of freelancers quite recently who are very who had very distinguished careers who basically can't get any work now in their field because they're the wrong age or the wrong demographic or whatever and I'm just wondering when you, when people come to you in that sort of situation, um, you are dealing with reality, but you are also wanting to help someone to tackle a source of um, not just discomfort and pain, but a, a kind of practical issue. Where do you start in, in a situation like that? So um, part of me thinks look at skills resources and begin to build some kind of list of um, what they're good at. Another part of me thinks, um, are you willing? Are you willing to work at this? Another part of me thinks you can't have everything. Mm. That um, fantasy is useful as an attractor, but it has a real price and we need to stay real. Mm. So I don't believe that everything is possible for everyone. You cannot all be prime minister. But I do think that with some, with a thinking partner or an accountability partner, or call it what you will, you can harness yourself and make conscious, take conscious steps to improve your life. I'm not quite sure I answered your question. No, you, well, you you did. Um, I'm I'm just wondering. I mean, um, some of this work. I think uh, what's her name? Um, Herminia Ibarra. I, I think that's her name. Wrote a book about career change and how generally it takes years, actually. Um, and many people come for quite short term coaching. 
how do you sort of set expectations for what is possible? And if, if, for example, somebody in midlife is either miserable in their career or has lost a career mm. and needs to find needs or hopes to find something to do that will pay the bills and be reasonably satisfying. I mean, I presume that's not going to happen in six sessions. How do you set expectations? Uh, lovely. Yeah, thank you. This is um, eating the elephant. Mm. So what's the first piece that we can do mm. rather than the whole thing? Yeah. And I think there is something, to me, it sounds a bit um, chilly about expectation management. You know, don't let people believe that everything is possible, but keep focused on what is. Yes. And keep focused on do something rather than just talk about it. Yes. Yes, very interesting. There is a, small, a school of think, thought called job crafting. Mm which I really quite like. It says basically, what are you good at? And therefore, what could you do rather than what do you want to do? And how do we yeah. make that happen? Yeah. And tell me about the coaching. So you started coaching development. Is, is it about 19, 20 years ago, something like that? Christina, in six days, we will be 19 years old. Oh, right, right, right. My goodness. 11th of, 11th of November is our birthday. Oh, wow. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Development. <laughs> so tell me about that journey and what made you decide to, to do it. CD. I, um, I was working in a company in Germany, a reinsurance company, using psychological theory to help people be better managers and give better presentations but without using any pathology. So no one lost face. They just began to think of, oh, isn't that interesting that I do unbelieve these things? And then someone accused me of being a coach. And I said, I, I am not. Um, I'm a burnt out therapist. <laughs> I told my friend Paddy and Paddy said, actually, I know someone who is a coach and who runs a coaching program um, go and train. So I did. And I met Philip, Philip Brew on that program. At the time I was teaching counselling in the Tipperary Rural Business Development Institute. And I mentioned coaching to them and they said, what's coaching? And I said, oh, it's this, this and this. And they said, oh, can we have a program? Oh my God. So I went back to Philip, who I was quite close to and said, I've got this potential contract shall we develop a training program? And we did. So coaching development started in County Tipperary. And then came to London, still running in Ireland. And when you when you travel all around the world, or certainly a number of countries, are you Doing coaching training generally, or what are you doing there? I'm hiding. <laughs> I used to teach, I used to live in Cape Town and teach coaching in Cape Town, but I now go there um, to recharge. Mm. And the places I go to tend to be farms. Right. And um, I, I'm a person who does really well in isolation and desolation. So the more, the more. Um, arid, the better. 
<laughs> I also go to the Czech Republic a lot because I find it still magical, mm. in in part greatly unchanged. Um, I am at heart a medievalist. And to see um, town walls and gateways is a great pleasure to me. How interesting. And ideally, do you like a balance of uh, training and coaching? What's your kind of perfect work balance? The wish is to um, work as an executive coach uh, for a week a month, mm -hmm. to do the equivalent of a week a month training, mm -hmm. and to travel for a week of the month. And the other week is free. That sounds fantastic. Doesn't it just? How near, are you, how near are you to that? If it was a bit more grouped, it would be great. But I do manage to spend a week a month in, in the Czech rep. Mm. And I am doing in more and more in-house coach training. So coaching for managers and leadership skills. And I, my practice my one-to-one -one practice is thriving at the moment so the three themes are there the three threads are there and I could probably do better diary management hmm. now you will be more than aware that there are masses of coaching programs now teaching programs um, and to the extent that there's kind of a bit of a pyramid scheme reputation, not least because the industry is in many ways unregulated. Of course, there is the ICF and there are other um, bodies, but it's but anyone could call themselves a coach and yes. and work anywhere. A, does that bother you? And B, what have you done to safeguard the reputation of coaching development? Ha! It uh, it's so. If you think of coaching as being, in essence, a useful conversation, then you can learn that within a relatively short period of time. So most of our in-house training um, is three days for managers, or if you want in-house coaches to work with the staff, then seven days. If you want someone to be your thinking partner, and to you want someone who can really be with you and evoke new awareness in other words what can be what can be um it will take a bit longer to learn that skill set you've probably come across the grow model yeah it's a very straightforward um, coaching process for some people and for some purposes that kind of approach is helpful but if you want to really touch someone's soul and help them evolve as a human to becoming more of who they can become, then you'll need, probably need to invest a bit more time in learning how to do that. Mm. Now, the, the um, ICF a sort of accreditation process has, is quite strict and has very clear parameters about what counts as coaching and what doesn't yes. I have the sense from I have the sense that you of course you are more than able to do that but I have a sense that you also offer something that is more of a hybrid of tapping into all kinds of bits of your experience knowledge expertise um, is that 
accurate and can you say a bit about that? Yes, the ICF model um, has its roots in business and this is the, I think this explains the ICF's focus on and achievement. What is it that you want to achieve in this conversation? Not everybody who wants coaching as opposed to counseling, not everyone who wants coaching wants an achievement. They want to feel heard. Mm. They want to find themselves. They want to do some um, intentional change. But that doesn't mean that every session for them uh, needs to have a, a defined outcome at the beginning. My One of my coaches used to say of people, they need a good listening to. Mm. And I think that is so, 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 so important. And I think as, as humans change or as times change, our need changes and we begin to look further or deeper or higher and, and ask ourselves questions about, so what's my life about then? And is this the life I actually want for myself because I created it? And when that question is voiced, then probably the answer is, well, no, not quite. Which leads us then to, so what is it that you would like? What would fulfill you? What do you want different? And often, so the, um, yeah, something has changed in the ICF recently when we changed the competency framework. The, um, the takeaway from coaching used to be um, called an action. But now, if you look at the wording, it says an action or new thinking. Mm. And what we've also added is the concept of learning. So learning about self and what you, how that will be useful to you. So I think the nature of coaching has changed. And I find it deeply exciting. It's no longer just about a goal or an outcome or a takeaway. It's about value. Mm. How can we have a conversation that is not about your pathology, but which is about you and about and is valuable to you? I love that. I love that. And, and I like the kind of very basic concept of coaching as a useful conversation. Yeah. Useful for one person. Mm. So often I say, I kick off by saying, how can we make this useful today? Mm. Rather than... Where are we going with this? Yes. And you've you've mentioned soul a, a few times and I know where you're and going. Life <laughs> and what life wants from you. And yes. you've recently been ordained as an interfaith minister. So um what is that? And would you tell us a bit about your journey there? Yes. Um Where do I begin? Um, like many people, I grew up with a religion that um, I could relate to in some way. And then we said goodbye. And I actually, by highways and byways, came across shamanic practices and found that they were absolutely me. And it's something about the rebel in me doesn't like structures and process and being told what to do. And shamanism doesn't do that. I also 
think that for humanity at its current stage of development um, would benefit from something like the Baha'i faith, which believes that there isn't a religion forever for everyone, but there's a continuing revelation by the higher, um, by the greater wisdom. And so there is a, a series of prophets, none of which is any better than the other. That makes total sense to me. And now I find myself very, very interested, probably because I'm getting older and my parents are on their last lap, about what comes next. And do we live do we live in an intelligent universe? And is consciousness what some people call a soul? And therefore, does consciousness continue after death? And what is after death? And how can we find a relationship to, to that? How often do you and I think about probably got 20 years left and what do we then do we put that aside and think oh dear oh dear oh dear let me numb myself let me not go too far down that route but why not why not think forward and so what's what's evolving for me Christina is the um is in my organizational work what's the legacy that people want to leave behind and in my and then, and what comes after your retirement, apart from a black hole? Mm. And I notice more and more that people, 30, 40-year-olds, actually are aching for some kind of, what's this all about? Mm. And I think interfaith, so not one particular religion, but the essence of religion, the essence of faith, the core beliefs, be it Hinduism, shamanism, the Baha'i faith, Christianity, whatever, pretty much say the same thing. What I don't know is, am I doing all this um, higher level thinking about life and death and meaning and purpose and beyond for me, or because I actually... Um, there are other people out there who'd like to have some conversations around that as well. I don't see a distinction, really. No. <laughs> I told a friend this, and I was reading a book by by Richard Raw, Adam's Return, about, about um, stages of life and spirit. And she said, humorously, men don't have a spirituality. And I thought, right then, being a rebel, um, a men's group on spirituality that's what we'll do i struggle with that hugely um because i don't in my own mind want to appear to be lunatic fringe or a religious fanatic and so it's really interesting my own you know, what's going on in me mm. that is emergent and it won't be stopped and therefore how can i get out of my own way and stop labeling myself unhelpfully and do the good work so at the moment do you think you've you've mentioned in in a, a piece you sent me that you were planning to out yourself as a spiritual coach yes is that likely to be 
a strand of the work you yes, offer. Entirely. Entirely. The um the work I do in organizations at the moment, the one to one work, is is um tends to be around why am I here? How can I find meaning in what I'm doing? And that question of how can I find meaning seems to me to be the question behind all questions. Mm. Yes, humans are meaning-making beings, but often we lose meaning. And that results in the form of distress. And I think my mission, if I or part of my mission is to sit with people and help them find meaning in their work as well as in their lives. Mm. Well, as you know, this podcast is all about finding meaning in your work. Yes. So that is the perfect note to end on. Thank you, Colin. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you today. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to hear my own thinking in the with presence of someone who can listen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories. And I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it, and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books, or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co. And do join me for another podcast next week. <laughs>